Welcome to the Inner Athlete Podcast, where we discuss all things youth athlete development and youth mentoring. Welcome back to the Inner Athlete Podcast. We have a special guest here. Well, I've got my uh, my coach, Dave. Um, we also have a special guest, Nathan Parnham. Now, Nathan Parnham is he worked all around in the uh, professional setting um, and now is making his home in the the high school setting up in Brisbane, a big weekend in Brisbane, that's for sure, with two grand finals. They've got a kicking off um, with the Broncos and the Lions. Um, but yeah, Nathan, if you want to just quickly give us an eleva- elevator pitch of who you are, because we want to get you know straight into the meat and potatoes of today. Yeah, cool. So uh, firstly, just want to say massive thanks for inviting me on, guys. Really excited for today's chat. And I suppose to sum up my career, I've been a, an SNC coach since 2002. And a significant portion of that time, say 15 to 17 odd years, was uh, in the development setting. So I set up multiple high schools throughout the country from uh, Westfield Sports High to Newington College, St. Augustine's. And then now I'm very fortunate to be at Bridgman Grammar School uh, on the north side, I suppose, of the east coast of Australia, for those who don't know. And I, I spent a double, I dabbled a little bit in the professional realm, uh, being with the Parramatta Eels and also with the Aussie Women's Sevens in the lead up to Tokyo before coming back into the development space. And I haven't looked back, to be honest. It's it's been exciting, and I got that extra spring in my step, getting continuing to evolve and and get back into something that I'm extremely passionate about. Cool. Well, let's get straight into it. So. Want to go back a couple of steps before we go forwards. Let's go through kind of like the history of youth athlete development because obviously it wasn't really much of a thing back in the day. I'm going back like 10, 15 years. Um, how did how have you seen things kind of like where they were initially when you first entered the industry to where like things are currently at the standing? So originally, I think it's only just starting to gather some momentum in the youth space, and and that comes in both the the development in the private sector and also in the schooling sector. So back when I started oh two oh three, you you either were a personal trainer or you were working in professional sport, and if you're anything in between, you'd kind of failed, I suppose, as a career option. So it was quite limited back then. And- I think the US have led this for a very long time, but the private sector in Australia has kicked off and gone gangbusters. And part of that we know is that a significant portion of that is to do with youth athletes. So you've got two big pools now, I suppose. The first one is in the private sector that everyone's tapping into that youth market, which is is great because the variety of that and the options are, are endless now. And then on top of that, in the schooling space, schools are now starting to realise that it's worth the investment because if you look at what's happened over the last couple of decades in whether you call it physical education and whatnot, whatever semantics you want to put a label to, then what you're seeing is less physical activity in schools and now schools are actually starting to see what that looks like and starting to invest in, you know, you see the gyms floating around and uh, head of athletic development and things like that. And I suppose that's the exciting time of it now is that when I started in 2012 at Westfield Sports High, fast forward to where it is now in, in the school setting, I think it's completely different. And I think it's now you've got actual professional coaches like myself and a lot of my colleagues and friends in the industry who are actually choosing to be in this lane and very similar to you guys as well, doing a great job of it. Yeah, it's. I think the US really led this trend 
you know, you see a lot of like middle school, high school weight rooms. You see all these videos of doing like coordinated efforts, whether it's, you know, zombie squats or uh, pistol squats or push-ups or bench press, whatever it may be. Um, and it's kind of had that nice little flow on effect into, I guess, into Australian um, doctrine or the, the idea of what it means to develop athletes these days. Um, and I think it's only a matter of time before more and more schools, obviously you'll have the elite level schools, you know, we, you know, in Australia or in Victoria. So we have got, you know, AGSB and APS, all the big private schools here. They always want to compete against each other and like whether it's head of the river or whether it's the rugby or, you know, footy down here, it's a big deal with, you know, a lot of schools spending, you know, a decent chunk of money on head coaches. So they want the S&C to kind of come up with that standard as well. So it's really kind of filtering down from that professional level or national level and kind of filtering down more into the high school, I guess the high school yeah, side. And I, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Like it's it's exciting as far as from an industry perspective on, on that front. The other thing is though as well is, so part of my role is on the high school advisory committee for the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association. And They've had significant amount of schools now reaching out saying that how can we get qualified? How can we do our level one and these sort of things? And, you know, who can write the programs and all these sort of things? Because part of it now is schools are acknowledging it so much that they see the value in it and they might not be able to, you know, it, it's great that we see all these flashy facilities and things like that because that's what we love as coaches. But the more people, more students who are physically engaged, and actually becoming more and more competent or physically literate when it comes to their movement competency, then that's the goal. And there's an abundance of, you know, from rural schools to whatever throughout the country who are all, you know, they're craving that information. And I think that's a really positive sign is that we're now kind of, we're in an agreement where it's, it's not just a personal trainer trying to kind of spruik a niche. It's actually schools now going, okay, well, who do we go to? And then now you've got, you know, the ACA and stuff with the position stand, the NSCA and those sort of things. And it's cool. It's a, it's a really great time to hopefully try and spread that diversity among so that we don't have the opposite ends of the spectrum being the elite private schools with everything, all access. And then you have the other opposite end of the spectrum with nothing. So yeah, I know the ACA behind the scenes is doing a great job in working towards that too. In terms of like the values for the schools, we obviously know that, you know, from a physical standpoint, we're developing bigger, stronger, faster athletes from an injury prevention standpoint as well. Like what are the other values that schools would actually get from a program like yours or ours or whatever it may be? Yeah, so aside from the the things that, you know, you guys and I know about when it comes to, you know, just being in the gym and building resilience and, and mental strength and things like that, overcoming adversity, discipline, all those traits that we know that training can instill and sport in general instills. But a lot of the things that schools often overlook when it comes to investing in this space, and I know we were chatting uh, a little bit offline about this previously, but it comes down to it's about pastoral care and involved in the PE curriculum where we can do full training. We can also be involved with the parental side of it. So things like, you know, father-son breakfast and things like that for new students, then getting the parenting and debunking those myths that if you're a year seven student and your dad comes into the gym with you, then that's actually a cool thing because it's like, okay, wow, like it's, it's not about he can't do strength training until he's 16 and whatnot. 
And then you have the other side to it too, is just educating the parents by having in-house presentations and things like that so that they're on board with the community and then that community builds, even extends through to the schooling community where the staff and teachers have access to the facility and the coaches that are on board too. So I think a big challenge for schools is understanding that it's about, okay, well, we've got a super qualified individual in the gym whose passion might be the youth space, but they also have multiple number of skill sets that can be diversified into the school community and also into the academic framework as well, which is often overlooked when it comes to investing in the space. Yeah, and we, we see the same thing here um, in terms of the net positive of not just from the physical standpoint, but, you know, maturity, cleaning up after themselves, putting things away, interacting with others. We have like 11-year-old interacting with the 16-year-olds, you know. You know, you get to interact with your peers where I guess the last couple of years, people being behind a computer screen, we've really lost that that point of contact as well. So I think that... I think for all schools, it's a huge net positive. Then I think it was a research piece that was released. I saw it on LinkedIn. Uh, it was a couple of months ago. It talked about the the grades. And I thought that was actually a really interesting piece where when a school introduced strength training, I think it was a meta-analysis actually. It's like 57 yeah. uh, research. You may, have, you may have come across it. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty certain I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah, and they said there was a there was a there was a net positive on grades, but also I think it was like days sick, um, attendance, um, and a few things that schools would really value. Which I you know from around here we know about you know a few of the schools are maybe struggling with that, particularly implementing a program like this. Obviously, it will take you know months, if not years, to really bring it up to full speed. Would actually be able to cover those issues, and then I think as a result, the school grades go up on average more school funding and you know it's kind of win-win across the board for everyone yeah for sure and, and i think you raise a good point because so th there was an article as well a while ago that's uh and it was to, it was this one specifically was to do with school grades and it showed that by engaging in a strength and conditioning uh program or model within a schooling framework then it does enhance academic performance and if you look at it and actually take a step back from a bird's eye view in general we know that physical activity enhances cognitive performance and those sort of things. Like every majority of people and health professionals know that. I think the challenge lies in that when you start kind of going down into certain tunnels and silos and things like that, where you put it in a schooling space and then the teachers are at war because the academic teachers, they, they want more time with the students to build their grades. And then you also have the, say, historically, the PE teachers who always get, you know, dished the, oh, you know, all they do is kick footies around all day and things like that, and they got a cushy gig, then there, there is a happy medium. And something that I'm extremely proud of at Brisbane Grammar School specifically is that we are heavily an academic school. And something that Brisbane Grammar School has actually done is not only is there academic achievement and accomplishment created, and, and we have, you know, a history of performing at that level in that side of it in the schooling space, but what we've actually done is invest into that academic timetable during the day where it's mandatory for those senior students to actually take part in physical activity, whether that's our lane or that's the, the um, playing games and things like that, then they have it integrated into their academic timetable during the day from a week to week. Okay, so what that means is that not only are we achieving at an academic level, 
but we're also getting them out, getting them engaged in physical activity. And it's kind of the reverse of what a lot of teachers throughout the country are thinking is they don't necessarily need more time face-to-face. It's about finding that balance to produce great results. And that's something that I, I'm really fortunate that I'm a part of. And, and I do see it come to fruition, even though you and I both know that we do have a bias towards it. So, Yeah, no, thanks for that. Um, we'll move on to... Uh... I guess the specialization, because in Australia, we tend to specialize quite early um, across a lot of sports and kind of like, you know, what's, what's your opinion on this and kind of like what, what's the general um, consensus of how we should be approaching things if the goal is to really get a child up to a national standard? What's the best way we can actually go about it? Yeah, so the, the interesting one with like, you can go down a rabbit hole for days on this and talk about specialization. So as a general rule of thumb, we know that early specialization is not the path to go. So early specialization being, you know, if you're under 10 years of age or 12 years of age and you're only engaging in, so there's different, let, let's be classify this. So there is different classifications of what specialization actually looks like. So the main level of sport specialization refers to participating year round in a sport and the kicker is at the exclusion of other sports okay so there's other classifications being that it can be specialization in a particular season where they're only engaged in a particular sport for that season but the one that that casts the shadow over most of it is that it's participating in a particular sport year round at the exclusion of others and then even more so further supplementing what that looks like by engaging in athletic development and hiring external specialized coaches to further cement that sport specialization model. And we do know that there's certain sports that flourish uh, at an earlier age. So if we look at sports, say for example, gymnastics is is a common one and diving and things like that, where uh, the earlier that they are engaged in a sport, then the greater likelihood of success. But there is a significant number of other sports, majority of them, where early specialization isn't necessarily the way to go. And and the way that you would determine that, I suppose, is that um, you want to what's what's often referred to as sport sampling. So sample an array of sports year round from an early age until they end up becoming intrinsically driven or intrinsically motivated, which is usually around that, if you want to talk about a general rule of thumb, it's usually around that mid-teens where then they can actually start to specialise and go down a particular route. But even then, you see elite athletes make it who were still dabbling in, I know AFL, where you guys are from, uh, is a big one in that they're still dabbling in AFL and basketball and things like that. And throughout their mid to even late teens, as then they start going through into that pathway program. So um, the general, I suppose, that the, the ideal model would be sample as frequently as possible early and then also engage in some sort of athletic development because we've already spoken about that there's a lack of physical participation and things like that in this generation. So if you get a good balance of the two, then eventually the main thing and the thing that a lot of parents overlook is if their child is to succeed, whatever that definition is in your family, that comes down to the child being intrinsically motivated to do it. And if you can set them up on a platform where they choose a sport that they love and they can move well because they've been engaged in physical activity from a long or from early ages, then 
that's a win-win right there. And that's the best way to go about it. What are the, some of the consequences of specialization of like literally just going down the rabbit hole of one sport? Yeah, so a, a big one that you'll often hear of is more the injury side of it, okay? But then the, a huge one that cannot be overlooked is is to do with the psychological one because, as I mentioned before, if it's about the child or the teen being intrinsically motivated, then what tends to happen is those pushy parents who are trying to specialise with their children early on, then what ends up happening is they end up resenting the sport and, more importantly, they end up hating physical activity. And there's a lot of instances where there's failed athletes. So you've got to look at it for every Tiger Woods and he's had his challenges. There's a lot of professional athletes who have specialized early and have had their challenges, but they've overcome them. But there are millions of other failed athletes around the world who not only resent their sport and the, the fractured family environment, but they also resent physical activity. And at the end of the day, that should be the goal. If your son or daughter doesn't make it as a professional athlete, hopefully you've done a good enough job that they actually just like being physically active, like you guys and myself to this day. Cool. Thanks. And structure and free play. So now we're, if you look at some of the academic schedules, and obviously, you know, you deal with academic schedule with Brisbane Grammar. And even some of the kids here, especially with the swimmers that we look after, they're, they're, they've got so much structure. So how do you kind of like allow that free play and creativity, um, especially in a sporting, I guess, for more like team-based sports where creativity is really important for that development and I guess, um, I guess more understanding that evasion side. How do you go about that and having that nice blend of developing the skills, but also having that creativity as well? Yeah, so there's a few layers to this. The, the first one has got to do with uh, making sure, so understanding. So big, most of the talks that I give and you know podcasts that I'm on and, and things like that is that parents don't have an understanding of what we as professionals refer to as weekly load, okay? So children and teenagers are extremely resilient, okay? They're really malleable and that's why I love training them. But the challenge lies in that if you as a parent are generally passionate about just trying to set your, your child up to succeed, you want to give them every opportunity. And what ends up happening with every opportunity is that you see there's seven days a week of constant sporting and coaching commitments. And then also in instances, multiple times throughout a day, that can be two or three times a day where they actually don't have any time to themselves where they can actually engage in free play or unstructured play. So the first stage of that, that I would say is making sure that they have at least one day in the week where they've got no commitments. They're not playing footy. They're not playing netball or basketball. They're not engaging in structured athletic development. Just give them a day off to be a child, a teenager and whatnot. That's the first part of it. The second part of it is most good youth coaches will understand that because this is lacking significantly, then in the earlier or the formative years, you want to try and have the freedom or unstructured element to the session. So if there's a, say, for example, there's a half an hour, 45 minute uh, group training session, then that first 10 minutes might be a game. Okay. And I know that that's technically 10 minutes structured into a 45 minute lesson or a, whatever it is, but it's free play. Okay. So on a tennis court, as an example, it might be 
the coach leaving the balls out on the court and saying, okay, you guys have got 10 minutes. You've got free time to play and do whatever. And what you'll see unfold there is a social dynamic. So that's where they're learning. It's it's not only about the sport. This is about life in general and realizing that certain students or certain players, athletes are leaders. Others are more followers. There's also rules. They also manipulate the rules to shape that in the environment. So when I was growing up and possibly you guys as well, you know, you're kicking a footy out on the street. It's not in a perfect footy field where you've got the lines marked, the gutters on one side are out, gutters on the other side, whatever. There's a dead ball line. And and all of these learn, uh, lessons are created in the absence, when I say absence of parental or professional supervision, they're still there, okay, making sure that nothing untoward goes on. But it's more the individuals and the group dynamics that are creating the rules and the games of what those look like. And then the more experienced the coach is in that, then they can bleed and drip feed opportunities into that to really encourage what that unstructured play looks like. And I suppose part of it is parents understanding that that's a strategic move from the coach employing or adopting that model. Because I have had coaches, extremely experienced coaches in the youth setting where they might have been implementing this and then a parent will say, oh, I don't pay all this money for my son to turn up and play handball. And it's like, well, they're actually learning and utilising hand-eye coordination and things like that. It's not about the coach being lazy. I'm sure that there might be instances where that happens, but if it's in the environment and there's an agenda to it and there's an objective to it, then that's the best part of it when it comes to unstructured play. So the first part of it would be that reducing the weekly commitment. The second part of it would be trying to understand where that can actually be put into place to ensure that there is an unstructured element in a structured world, apparently. Yeah, and I think that free play just enables the kid to work on areas that they wouldn't necessarily work on, just pretty much in general. It might, it might oh, even be holes as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you see, well, that's, that's where the creativity comes, right? So uh, I just used handball as an example with tennis. There's no racket in hand to play handball, but they're actually facilitating their hand-eye coordination, right? And they're also still moving through that multi-planar, um, you know, planes of movement whereby that's a positive transfer to their sport because a lot of kids these days don't actually play handball. Some schools outlaw it, okay? So um, that's something that a lot of parents that, that I particularly engage with is they fail to grasp the concept that the youth coming through now don't have the same upbringing and opportunities that they had. Because if you throw elements of, you know, whether it be banned rules because of arguments and things for not being able to play handball, then you throw the technology side into it. There's there's kids not playing out on the street. And that is a study, a really good one. I'll forward it to you guys if you're interested after, is that one of the biggest benefits to COVID that came from this was that it actually put a halt to those weekly sporting commitments whereby parents were engaging with their children at local parks and in the backyard, there was more socialization. So more opportunity for unstructured play. And what it also did was put a halt with that sporting commitment enough for the individual and their family to actually choose whether or not the sports that they were engaging in were what they actually really wanted to participate in the first place. So that's a huge win for coming out the back end of COVID. Boom. Uh, yeah, I guess it just pumped the brakes for a lot of overcommitted. It did, uh, spot on. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, what was happening now is everyone was too keen to get back onto it that we're we're kind of back where we were when we started, and I think that's a sad thing because a lot of parents would have actually enjoyed those moments where they were playing with their kids and things like that, and but everyone's quick to rush back to to what the norm is. So I think it became an overcompensation, really. I think everyone was like, "Oh shit, I missed out on a year, two years of coaching, and now I've got to play catch up," and I'm like. Yeah. And then and then the other side to that too is what you're also seeing is you will see is a delay in what that two to three year window looks like for that that particular uh, window of athletes coming through. So they might not be perceived as being as talented or not in particular sports. And you'll see it because if if someone was 13 or 14 uh, when when it all started rolling out, then they missed a good two years of competition in the arena too. So it works both ways in, in what that actually looks like in new sport. Yeah, it's going to be interesting how it unfolds when you get the next crop of talent coming through through the next drafts and selections and whatnot. Yeah, definitely. Big time. Keep an eye out on the second installment of our conversation. If you want to stay updated on the latest episodes, make sure to subscribe to Inner Athlete on both YouTube and Spotify.